Chapter forty six of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter forty six. The Corn Mother in Many Lands. One. THE CORN MOTHER IN AMERICA European peoples, ancient and modern, have not been singular in personifying the corn as a mother goddess. The same simple idea has suggested itself to other agricultural races in distant parts of the world, and has been applied by them to other indigenous cereals than barley and wheat. If Europe has its wheat mother and its barley mother, America has its maize mother, and the East Indies their rice-mother. These personifications I will now illustrate, beginning with the American personification of the maize. We have seen that among European peoples it is a common custom to keep the plated corn-stalks of the last sheaf, or the puppet which is formed out of them, in the farmhouse from harvest to harvest. The intention, no doubt, is, or rather originally was, by preserving the representative of the corn-spirit, to maintain the spirit itself in life and activity throughout the year, in order that the corn may grow and the crops be good. This interpretation of the custom is at all events rendered highly probable by a similar custom observed by the ancient Peruvians, and thus described by the old Spanish historian Acosta. They take a certain portion of the most fruitful of the maize that grows in their farms, the which they put in a certain granary, which they do call pirua, with certain ceremonies, watching three nights. They put this maize in the richest garments they have, and being thus wrapped and dressed, they worship this pirua, and hold it in great veneration, saying it is the mother of the maize of their inheritances and that by this means the maize augments and is preserved. In this month, the sixth month, answering to May, they make a particular sacrifice, and the witches demand of this pirua if it hath strength sufficient to continue until the next year, and if it answers no, then they carry this maize to the farm to burn whence they brought it, according to every man's power. Then they make another pirua, with the same ceremonies, saying that they renew it. To the end the seed of maize may not perish, and if it answers that it hath force sufficient to last longer, they leave it until the next year. This foolish vanity continueth to this day, and it is very common amongst the Indians to have these piruas. In this description of the custom there seems to be some error. Probably it was the dressed-up bunch of maize, not the granary, Pirua, which was worshipped by the Peruvians, and regarded as the mother of the maize. This is confirmed by what we know of the Peruvian custom from another source. The Peruvians, we are told, believed all useful plants to be animated by a divine being who causes their growth. According to the particular plant, these divine beings were called the maize-mother, Taramama, the quinoa mother, quinoa mama, the coca mother, coca mama, and the potato mother, asho mama. 
figures of these divine mothers were made respectively of ears of maize and leaves of the quinoa and coca plants. They were dressed in women's clothes and worshipped. Thus the maize mother was represented by a puppet made of stalks of maize, dressed in full female attire, and the Indians believed that, as mother, it had the power of producing and giving birth to much maize. Probably, therefore, Acosta misunderstood his informant, and the mother of the maize, which he describes, was not the granary, Pirua, but the bunch of maize dressed in rich vestments. The Peruvian mother of the maize, like the harvest maiden at Balhwidar, was kept for a year in order that by her means the corn might grow and multiply. But lest her strength might not suffice to last till the next harvest, she was asked in the course of the year how she felt, and if she answered that she felt weak, she was burnt and a fresh mother of the maize made. To the end the seed of maize may not perish. Here it may be observed we have a strong confirmation of the explanation already given of the custom of killing the god, both periodically and occasionally. The mother of the maize was allowed, as a rule, to live through a year, that being the period during which her strength might reasonably be supposed to last unimpaired. But on any symptom of her strength failing, she was put to death, and a fresh and vigorous mother of the maize took her place, lest the maize, which depended on her for its existence, should languish and decay. 2. The Rice Mother in the East Indies if the reader still feels any doubts as to the meaning of the harvest customs which have been practised within living memory by European peasants, these doubts may perhaps be dispelled by comparing the customs observed at the rice harvest by the Malays and Dyaks of the East Indies. For these Eastern peoples have not, like our peasantry, advanced beyond the intellectual stage at which the customs originated. Their theory and their practice are still in unison. For them the quaint rites which in Europe have long dwindled into mere fossils, the pastime of clowns and the puzzle of the learned, are still living realities of which they can render an intelligible and truthful account. Hence a study of their beliefs and usages concerning the rice may throw some light on the true meaning of the ritual of the corn in ancient Greece and modern Europe. Now, the whole of the ritual which the Malays and Dyaks observe in connection with the rice is founded on the simple conception of the rice as animated by a soul like that which these people attribute to mankind. They explain the phenomena of reproduction, growth, decay and death in the rice on the same principles on which they explain the corresponding phenomena in human beings. They imagine that in the fibres of the plant, as in the body of a man, there is a certain vital element, which is so far independent of the plant, that it may for a time be completely separated from it, without fatal effects, though, if its absence be prolonged beyond certain limits, the plant will wither and die. This vital, yet separable element is what, for the want of a better word, we must call the soul of a plant, just as a similar vital and separable element is commonly supposed to constitute the soul of man. And on this theory, or myth, of the plant soul is built the whole worship of the cereals, just as on the theory, or myth, of the human soul is built the whole worship of the dead, 
a towering superstructure reared on a slender and precarious foundation. Believing the rice to be animated by a soul like that of a man, the Indonesians naturally treat it with the deference and consideration which they show to their fellows. Thus they behave towards the rice in bloom as they behave towards a pregnant woman. They abstain from firing guns or making loud noises in the field, lest they should so frighten the soul of the rice that it would miscarry and bear no grain. And for the same reason they will not talk of corpses or demons in the rice fields. Moreover, they feed the blooming rice with foods of various kinds which are believed to be wholesome for women with child. But when the rice ears are just beginning to form, they are looked upon as infants, and women go through the fields feeding them with rice pap, as if they were human babes. In such natural and obvious comparisons of the breeding plant to a breeding woman, and of the young grain to a young child, is to be sought the origin of the kindred Greek conception of the corn-mother and the corn-daughter, Demeter and Persephone. But if the timorous feminine soul of the rice can be frightened into a miscarriage, even by loud noises, it is easy to imagine what her feelings must be at harvest, when people are under the sad necessity of cutting down the rice with the knife. At so critical a season, every precaution must be used to render the necessary surgical operation of reaping as inconspicuous and as painless as possible. For that reason, the reaping of the seed-rice is done with knives of a peculiar pattern, such that the blades are hidden in the reaper's hands, and do not frighten the rice-spirit till the very last moment, when her head is swept off almost before she is aware, and from a like delicate motive the reapers at work in the fields employ a special form of speech, which the rice-spirit cannot be expected to understand, so that she has no warning or inkling of what is going forward till the heads of rice are safely deposited in the basket. Among the Indonesian peoples who thus personify the rice, we may take the Kayans or Bahaus of central Borneo as typical. In order to secure and detain the volatile soul of the rice, the Kayans resort to a number of devices. Among the instruments employed for this purpose are a miniature ladder, a spatula, and a basket containing hooks, thorns, and cords. With the spatula the priestess strokes the sole of the rice down the little ladder into the basket, where it is naturally held fast by the hooks, the thorn, and the cord, and having thus captured and imprisoned the sole, she conveys it into the rice granary. Sometimes a bamboo box and a net are used for the same purpose. And in order to ensure a good harvest for the following year, it is necessary not only to detain the soul of all the grains of rice which are safely stored in the granary, but also to attract and recover the soul of all the rice that has been lost through falling to the earth, or being eaten by deer, apes, and pigs. For this purpose, instruments of various sorts have been invented by the priests. One, for example, is a bamboo vessel, provided with four hooks, made from the wood of a fruit-tree, by means of which the absent rice-soul may be hooked and drawn back into the vessel, which is then hung up in the house. Sometimes two hands, carved out of the wood of a fruit-tree, are used for the same purpose, 
and every time that a Kayan housewife fetches rice from the granary for the use of her household, she must propitiate the souls of the rice in the granary, lest they should be angry at being robbed of their substance. The same need of securing the soul of the rice, if the crop is to thrive, is keenly felt by the Karens of Burma. When a rice-field does not flourish, they suppose that the soul, Kella, of the rice, is in some way detained from the rice. If the soul cannot be called back, the crop will fail. The following formula is used in recalling the Kella, soul, of the rice. Oh, come, rice Kella, come! Come to the field, come to the rice! With seed of each gender, come! Come from the river Kor, come from the river Kor! from the place where they meet, come, come from the west, come from the east, from the throat of the bird, from the maw of the ape, from the throat of the elephant, come from the sources of rivers and their mouths, come from the country of the Shan and the Burman, from the distant kingdoms, come, from all granaries, come, O rice-keller, come to the rice. The corn-mother of our European peasants has her match in the rice-mother, of the Minangkabauers of Sumatra. The Minangkabauers definitely attribute a soul to rice, and will sometimes assert that rice pounded in the usual way tastes better than rice ground in a mill, because in the mill the body of the rice was so bruised and battered that the soul has fled from it. Like the Javanese, they think that the rice is under the special guardianship of a female spirit called Saning Sari, who is conceived as so closely knit up with the plant that the rice often goes by her name, as with the Romans the corn might be called Ceres. In particular, Saning Sari is represented by certain stalks or grains called Indoea Padi, that is, literally, Mother of Rice, a name that is often given to the guardian spirit herself. This so-called mother of rice is the occasion of a number of ceremonies observed at the planting and harvesting of the rice, as well as during its preservation in the barn. When the seed of the rice is about to be sown in the nursery or bedding-out ground, where, under the wet system of cultivation, it is regularly allowed to sprout before being transplanted to the fields, the best grains are picked out to form the rice mother. These are then sown in the middle of the bed, and the common seed is planted round about them. The state of the rice-mother is supposed to exert the greatest influence on the growth of the rice. If she droops or pines away, the harvest will be bad in consequence. The woman who sows the rice-mother in the nursery lets her hair hang loose and afterwards bathes, as a means of ensuring an abundant harvest. When the time comes to transplant the rice from the nursery to the field, the rice-mother receives a special place either in the middle or in the corner of the field, and a prayer or charm is uttered as follows. Sunning Sari, may a measure of rice come from a stalk of rice, and a basket fall from a root. May you be frightened neither by lightning nor by passers-by. Sunshine make you glad. With the storm may you be at peace." and may rain serve to wash your face. While the rice is growing, the particular plant which was thus treated as the rice-mother is lost sight of, but before harvest another rice-mother is found. When the crop is ripe for cutting, the eldest woman of the family, or a sorcerer, goes out to look for her. 
the first stalks seen to bend under a passing breeze are the rice mother and they are tied together but not cut until the first fruits of the field have been carried home to serve as a festal meal for the family and their friends nay even for the domestic animals since it is sanning sari's pleasure that the beasts also should partake of her good gifts after the meal has been eaten the rice mother is fetched home by persons in gay attire who carry her very carefully under an umbrella in a neatly worked bag to the barn where a place in the middle is assigned to her every one believes that she takes care of the rice in the barn and even multiplies it not uncommonly when the tomori of central Celebes are about to plant the rice, they bury in the field some beetle as an offering to the spirits who cause the rice to grow. The rice that is planted round this spot is the last to be reaped at harvest. At the commencement of the reaping, the stalks of this patch of rice are tied together into a sheaf, which is called the mother of the rice, Inenopae, and offerings in the shape of rice, fowl's liver, eggs, and other things are laid down before it. When all the rest of the rice in the field has been reaped, the mother of the rice is cut down and carried with due honour to the rice-barn, where it is laid on the floor, and all the other sheaves are piled upon it. The Tomori, we are told, regard the mother of the rice as a special offering made to the rice-spirit Omonga, who dwells in the moon. If that spirit is not treated with proper respect, for example, if the people who fetch the rice from the barn are not decently clad, he is angry and punishes the offenders by eating up twice as much rice in the barn as they have taken out of it. Some people have heard him smacking his lips in the barn as he devoured the rice. On the other hand, the Torajas of Central Celebes, who also practice the custom of the rice mother at harvest, regard her as the actual mother of the whole harvest, and therefore keep her carefully, lest in her absence the garnered store of rice should all melt away and disappear. Again, just as in Scotland the old and the young spirit of the corn are represented as an old wife, Kalyach, and a maiden respectively, so in the Malay Peninsula we find both the rice mother and her child represented by different sheaves or bundles of ears on the harvest field. The ceremony of cutting and bringing home the soul of the rice was witnessed by Mr. W. W. Skeet at Chodoy in Selangor on the 28th of January 1897. The particular bunch or sheaf which was to serve as the mother of the rice soul had previously been sought and identified by means of the markings or shape of the ears. From this sheaf an aged sorceress, with much solemnity, cut a little bundle of seven ears, anointed them with oil, tied them round with party-coloured thread, fumigated them with incense, and having wrapped them in a white cloth, deposited them in a little oval-shaped basket. These seven ears were the infant soul of the rice, and the little basket was its cradle. It was carried home to the farmer's house by another woman, who held up an umbrella to screen the tender infant from the hot rays of the sun. Arrived at the house, the rice-child was welcomed by the women of the family, and laid, cradle and all, on a new sleeping-mat with pillows at the head. 
After that the farmer's wife was instructed to observe certain rules of taboo for three days, the rules being in many respects identical with those which have to be observed for three days after the birth of a real child. Something of the same tender care which is thus bestowed on the newly born rice child is naturally extended also to its parent, the sheaf from whose body it was taken. This sheaf, which remains standing in the field after the rice soul has been carried home and put to bed, is treated as a newly made mother. That is to say, young shoots of trees are pounded together and scattered broadcast every evening for three successive days, and when the three days are up, you take the pulp of a coconut and what are called goat flowers, mix them up, eat them with a little sugar, and spit some of the mixture out among the rice. So, after a real birth, the young shoots of the jackfruit, the rose-apple, certain kinds of banana, and the thin pulp of young coconuts, are mixed with dried fish, salt, acid, prawn condiment, and the like dainties, to form a sort of salad, which is administered to mother and child for three successive days. The last sheaf is reaped by the farmer's wife, who carries it back to the house, where it is threshed and mixed with the rice sole. The farmer then takes the rice sole and its basket, and deposits it, together with the product of the last sheaf, in the big circular rice bin used by the Malays. Some grains from the rice sole are mixed with the seed which is to be sown in the following year. In this rice mother and rice child of the Malay Peninsula, we may see the counterpart, and in a sense the prototype, of the Demeter and Persephone of ancient Greece. Once more, the European custom of representing the corn spirit in the double form of bride and bridegroom has its parallel in a ceremony observed at the rice harvest in Java. Before the reapers begin to cut the rice, the priest or sorcerer picks out a number of ears of rice, which are tied together, smeared with ointment, and adorned with flowers. Thus decked out, the ears are called the padi penganten, that is, the rice bride and the rice bridegroom. Their wedding feast is celebrated, and the cutting of the rice begins immediately afterwards. Later on, when the rice is being got in, a bridal chamber is partitioned off in the barn, and furnished with a new mat, a lamp, and all kinds of toilet articles. Sheaves of rice, to represent the wedding guests, are placed beside the rice bride and the rice bridegroom. Not till this has been done may the whole harvest be housed in the barn. And for the first forty days after the rice has been housed, no one may enter the barn, for fear of disturbing the newly wedded pair. In the islands of Bali and Lombok, when the time of harvest has come, the owner of the field himself makes a beginning by cutting the principal rice with his own hands, and binding it into two sheaves each composed of one hundred and eight stalks, with their leaves attached to them. One of the sheaves represents a man, and the other a woman, and they are called husband and wife. The male sheaf is wound about with thread, so that none of the leaves are visible, whereas the female sheaf has its leaves bent over and tied, so as to resemble the roll of a woman's hair. Sometimes, for further distinction, a necklace of rice straw is tied round the female sheaf. 
When the rice is brought home from the field, the two sheaves representing the husband and wife are carried by a woman on her head, and are the last of all to be deposited in the barn. There they are laid to rest on a small erection, or on a cushion of rice straw. The whole arrangement, we are informed, has for its object to induce the rice to increase and multiply in the granary, so that the owner may get more out of it than he put in. Hence, when the people of barley bring the two sheaves, the husband and wife, into the barn, they say, Increase ye and multiply without ceasing. When all the rice in the barn has been used up, the two sheaves, representing the husband and wife, remain in the empty building till they have gradually disappeared or been devoured by mice. The pinch of hunger sometimes drives individuals to eat up the rice of these two sheaves, but the wretches who do so are viewed with disgust by their fellows and branded as pigs and dogs. Nobody would ever sell these holy sheaves with the rest of their profane brethren. The same notion of the propagation of the rice by a male and female power finds expression among the Sis of Upper Burma. When the paddy, that is, the rice with the husks still on it, has been dried and piled in a heap for threshing, all the friends of the household are invited to the threshing floor, and food and drink are brought out. The heap of paddy is divided, and one half spread out for threshing, while the other half is left piled up. On the pile food and spirits are set, and one of the elders, addressing the father and mother of the paddy plant, prays for plenteous harvests in future, and begs that the seed may bear manyfold. Then the whole party eat, drink, and make merry. This ceremony at the threshing floor is the only occasion when these people invoke the father and mother of the paddy. 3. The spirit of the corn embodied in human beings. Thus the theory which recognises in the European corn mother, corn maiden, and so forth, the embodiment in the vegetable form of the animating spirit of the crops, is amply confirmed by the evidence of peoples in other parts of the world, who, because they have lagged behind the European races in mental development, retain for that very reason a keener sense of the original motives for observing those rustic rites which among ourselves have sunk to the level of meaningless survivals. The reader may, however, remember that according to Mannhardt, whose theory I am expounding, the spirit of the corn manifests itself not merely in vegetable, but also in human form. The person who cuts the last sheaf, or gives the last stroke at threshing, passes for a temporary embodiment of the corn spirit, just as much as the bunch of corn which he reaps or threshes. Now, in the parallels which have been hitherto adduced from the customs of people outside Europe, the spirit of the crops appears only in vegetable form. It remains, therefore, to prove that other races besides our European peasantry have conceived the spirit of the crops as incorporate in, or represented by, living men and women. Such a proof, I may remind the reader, is germane to the theme of this book. For the more instances we discover of human beings representing in themselves the life or animating spirit of the plants, the less difficulty will be felt at classing amongst them the king of the wood at Nemi.
The Mandans and Minitaris of North America used to hold a festival in spring which they called the Corn Medicine Festival of the Women. They thought that a certain old woman who never dies made the crops to grow, and that, living somewhere in the south, she sent the migratory waterfowl in spring as her tokens and representatives. Each sort of bird represented a special kind of crop cultivated by the Indians. The wild goose stood for the maize, the wild swan for the gourds, and the wild duck for the beans. So, when the feathered messengers of the old woman began to arrive in spring, the Indians celebrated the corn medicine festival of the women. Scaffolds were set up, on which the people hung dried meat and other things by way of offerings to the old woman. And on a certain day, the old women of the tribe, as representatives of the old woman who never dies, assembled at the scaffolds, each bearing in her hand an ear of maize fastened to a stick. They first planted these sticks in the ground, then danced round the scaffolds, and finally took up the sticks again in their arms. Meanwhile the old men beat drums and shook rattles as a musical accompaniment to the performance of the old women. Further, young women came and put dried flesh into the mouths of the old women, for which they received in return a grain of the consecrated maize to eat. Three or four grains of the holy corn were also placed in the dishes of the young women, to be afterwards carefully mixed with the seed corn, which they were supposed to fertilize. The dried flesh hung on the scaffold belonged to the old women, because they represented the old woman who never dies. A similar corn medicine festival was held in autumn for the purpose of attracting the herds of buffaloes and securing a supply of meat. At that time every woman carried in her arms an uprooted plant of maize. They gave the name of the old woman who never dies, both to the maize and to those birds which they regarded as symbols of the fruits of the earth, and they prayed to them in autumn, saying, Mother, have pity on us. Send us not the bitter cold too soon, lest we have not meat enough. Let not all the game depart, that we may have something for the winter. In autumn, when the birds were flying south, the Indians thought that they were going home to the old woman, and taking to her the offerings that had been hung up on the scaffolds, especially the dried meat, which she ate. Here, then, we have the spirit or divinity of the corn, conceived as an old woman, and represented in bodily form by old women, who, in their capacity of representatives, receive some at least of the offerings which are intended for her. In some parts of India, the harvest goddess Gauri is represented at once by an unmarried girl, and by a bundle of wild balsam plants, which is made up into the figure of a woman, and dressed as such with mask, garments, and ornaments. Both the human and the vegetable representative of the goddess are worshipped, and the intention of the whole ceremony appears to be to ensure a good crop of rice. 4. The Double Personification of the Corn as Mother and Daughter Compared with the corn mother of Germany and the harvest maiden of Scotland, the Demeter and Persephone of Greece are late products of religious growth. Yet, as members of the Aryan family, the Greeks must at one time or another have observed harvest customs like those which are still practised by Celts, Teutons, and Slavs, and which, far beyond the limits of the Aryan world, 
have been practised by the Indians of Peru and many peoples of the East Indies, a sufficient proof that the ideas on which these customs rest are not confined to any one race, but naturally suggest themselves to all untutored peoples engaged in agriculture. It is probable, therefore, that Demeter and Persephone, those stately and beautiful figures of Greek mythology, grew out of the same simple beliefs and practices which still prevail among our modern peasantry, and that they were represented by rude dolls made out of the yellow sheaves on many a harvest field, long before their breathing images were wrought in bronze and marble by the master hands of Phidias and Praxiteles. A reminiscence of that olden time, a scent, so to say, of the harvest field, lingered to the last in the title of the maiden, Kore, by which Persephone was commonly known. Thus, if the prototype of Demeter is the corn-mother of Germany, the prototype of Persephone is the harvest maiden, which, autumn after autumn, is still made from the last sheaf on the braes of Balhwidder. Indeed, if we knew more about the peasant farmers of ancient Greece, we should probably find that even in classical times they continued annually to fashion their corn-mothers, Demeters, and maidens, Persephones, out of the ripe corn on the harvest-fields. But, unfortunately, the Demeter and Persephone whom we know were the denizens of towns, the majestic inhabitants of lordly temples. It was for such divinities alone that the refined writers of antiquity had eyes. The uncouth rites, performed by rustics amongst the corn, were beneath their notice. Even if they noticed them, they probably never dreamt of any connection between the puppet of cornstalks on the sunny stubble field and the marble divinity in the shady coolness of the temple. Still the writings even of these town-bred and cultured persons afford us an occasional glimpse of a Demeter as rude as the rudest that a remote German village can show. Thus the story that Iasion begat a child Plutus, wealth, abundance, by Demeter on a thrice-ploughed field, may be compared with the West Prussian custom of the mock birth of a child on the harvest field. In this Prussian custom, the pretended mother represents the corn-mother, Zhitnia Matka, the pretended child represents the corn-baby, and the whole ceremony is a charm to ensure a crop next year. The custom and the legend alike point to an older practice of performing, among the sprouting crops in the spring, or the stubble in autumn, one of those real or mimic acts of procreation, by which, as we have seen, primitive man often seeks to infuse his own vigorous life into the languid or decaying energies of nature. Another glimpse of the savage under the civilised Demeter will be afforded farther on, when we come to deal with another aspect of those agricultural divinities. The reader may have observed that in modern folk customs the corn-spirit is generally represented either by a corn-mother, old woman, etc., or by a maiden, harvest-child, etc., not both by a corn-mother and by a maiden. Why, then, did the Greeks represent the corn both as a mother and a daughter? In the Breton custom, the mother-sheaf, a large figure made out of the last sheaf with a small corn-doll inside of it, clearly represents both the corn-mother and the corn-daughter, 
the latter still unborn. Again, in the Prussian custom just referred to, the woman who plays the part of the corn mother represents the ripe grain. The child appears to represent next year's corn, which may be regarded, naturally enough, as the child of this year's corn, since it is from the seed of this year's harvest that next year's crop will spring. Further, we have seen that among the Malays of the peninsula, and sometimes among the highlanders of Scotland, the spirit of the grain is represented in double female form, both as old and young, by means of ears taken alike from the ripe crop. In Scotland, the old spirit of the corn appears as the carleen or kalyach, the young spirit as the maiden, while among the Malays of the peninsula, the two spirits of the rice are definitely related to each other as mother and child. Judged by these analogies, Demeter would be the ripe crop of this year, Persephone would be the seed corn taken from it, and sown in autumn to reappear in spring. The descent of Persephone into the lower world would thus be a mythical expression for the sowing of the seed. Her reappearance in spring would signify the sprouting of the young corn. In this way the Persephone of one year becomes the Demeter of the next, and this may very well have been the original form of the myth. But when, with the advance of religious thought, the corn came to be personified, no longer as a being that went through the whole cycle of birth, growth, reproduction and death within a year, but as an immortal goddess, consistency required that one of the two personifications, the mother or the daughter, should be sacrificed. However, the double conception of the corn as mother and daughter may have been too old and too deeply rooted in the popular mind to be eradicated by logic, and so room had to be found in the reformed myth both for mother and daughter. This was done by assigning to Persephone the character of the corn sown in autumn and sprouting in spring, while Demeter was left to play the somewhat vague part of the heavy mother of the corn, who laments its annual disappearance underground, and rejoices over its reappearance in spring. Thus, instead of a regular succession of divine beings, each living a year and then giving birth to her successor, the reformed myth exhibits the conception of two divine and immortal beings, one of whom annually disappears into and reappears from the ground, while the other has little to do but to weep and rejoice at the appropriate seasons. This theory of the double personification of the corn in Greek myth assumes that both personifications, Demeter and Persephone, are original. But if we suppose that the Greek myth started with a single personification, the aftergrowth of a second personification may perhaps be explained as follows. On looking over the harvest customs which have been passed under review, it may be noticed that they involve two distinct conceptions of the corn spirit. For whereas in some of the customs the corn spirit is treated as imminent in the corn, in others it is regarded as external to it. Thus, when a particular sheaf is called by the name of the corn spirit, and is dressed in clothes and handled with reverence, the spirit is clearly regarded as imminent in the corn. But when the spirit is said to make the crops grow by passing through them, or to blight the grain of those against whom she has a grudge, she is apparently conceived as distinct from, though exercising power over, the corn. 
Conceived in the latter mode, the corn spirit is in a fair way to become a deity of the corn, if she has not become so already. Of these two conceptions, that of the corn spirit as immanent in the corn is doubtless the older, since the view of nature animated by indwelling spirits appears to have generally preceded the view of it as controlled by external deities. To put it shortly, animism precedes deism. In the harvest customs of our European peasantry, the corn spirit seems to be conceived now as imminent in the corn, and now as external to it. In Greek mythology, on the other hand, Demeter is viewed rather as the deity of the corn, than as the spirit imminent in it. The process of thought which leads to the change from the one mode of conception to the other is anthropomorphism, or the gradual investment of the immanent spirits with more and more of the attributes of humanity. As men emerge from savagery, the tendency to humanize their divinities gains strength, and the more human these become, the wider is the breach which severs them from the natural objects of which they were at first merely the animating spirits or souls. But in the progress upwards from savagery, men of the same generation do not march abreast, and though the new anthropomorphic gods may satisfy the religious wants of the more developed intelligences, the backward members of the community will cling by preference to the old animistic notions. Now, when the spirit of any natural object, such as the corn, has been invested with human qualities, detached from the object, and converted into a deity controlling it, the object itself is, by the withdrawal of its spirit, left inanimate. It becomes, so to say, a spiritual vacuum. But the popular fancy, intolerant of such a vacuum, in other words, unable to conceive anything as inanimate, immediately creates a fresh mythical being, with which it peoples the vacant object. Thus the same natural object comes to be represented in mythology by two distinct beings, first by the old spirit, now separated from it and raised to the rank of a deity, second by the new spirit, freshly created by the popular fancy, to supply the place vacated by the old spirit on its elevation to a higher sphere. In such cases, the problem for mythology is, having got two distinct personifications of the same object, what to do with them? How are their relations to each other to be adjusted, and room found for both in the mythological system? When the old spirit or new deity is conceived as creating or producing the object in question, the problem is easily solved. Since the object is believed to be produced by the old spirit, and animated by the new one, the latter, as the soul of the object, must also owe its existence to the former. Thus the old spirit will stand to the new one as producer to produced, that is, in mythology, as parent to child, and if both spirits are conceived as female, their relation will be that of mother and daughter. In this way, starting from a single personification of the corn as female, mythic fancy might in time reach a double personification of it as mother and daughter. It would be very rash to affirm that this was the way in which the myth of Demeter and Persephone actually took shape, 
but it seems a legitimate conjecture that the reduplication of deities, of which Demeter and Persephone furnish an example, may sometimes have arisen in the way indicated. For example, among the pairs of deities dealt with in a former part of this work, it has been shown that there are grounds for regarding both Isis and her companion god Osiris as personifications of the corn. On the hypothesis just suggested, Isis would be the old corn spirit, and Osiris would be the newer one, whose relationship to the old spirit was variously explained as that of brother, husband, and son, for of course mythology would always be free to account for the coexistence of the two divinities in more ways than one. It must not, however, be forgotten that this proposed explanation of such pairs of deities as Demeter and Persephone, or Isis and Osiris, is purely conjectural, and is only given for what it is worth. End of chapter 46